Hello and welcome to the second season of Looking Up, a Unity podcast, a podcast for women by women. I am Paramita Chatterjee and I have been with PayPal for over 12 years as an HR and talent leader and a veteran member of Unity. On this podcast, we are unpacking some of the most important issues that women face at work and beyond. I'm so lucky to be joined by my esteemed co-host, Rachel Simmons. Rachel is a New York Times bestselling author, executive coach, and a lifelong educator. And I love practical learning with humor and authenticity, and we have got all three in store for you on this podcast. I'm so excited to partner with PayPal to have these conversations and connect with women around the globe. So buckle up. We have got a lot to talk about. Well, I am so excited to welcome Tiffany Dufu, author, founder, CEO, to the podcast. First, let me introduce Tiffany. She is a catalyst at large in the world of women's leadership and the author of the wonderful book, Drop the Ball, a memoir and manifesto that shows women how to cultivate the single skill they really need in order to thrive, the ability to let go. Gloria Steinem, who wrote the foreword to Drop the Ball, called the book important, pathbreaking, intimate, and brave. Tiffany was named to Fast Company's League of Extraordinary Women. And as I mentioned earlier, she's a founder and CEO of The Crew, which is a peer coaching platform for women looking to accelerate their professional and personal growth. We'll be talking about that too. Tiffany is a lifelong advocate for women and girls who I have admired for so many years. She was a launch team member to Lean In. She was chief leadership officer at Levo. And prior to that, she was president of the White House Project, which is where I got to know her. She has been a major gift officer at Simmons College and associate director of development at Seattle Girls School. She's a board member, a member of the Women's Forum of New York, a sorority woman, and she is, importantly, a lifetime Girl Scout. She lives in Harlem in New York City with her two children. Tiffany, welcome to Looking Up. Thank you so much. You didn't say that I'm also, it's probably not written down, that I'm on the advisory board for Girls Leadership. That's right. You are on the advisory board for Girls Leadership, of which I am the co-founder. That is a lovely point of synchronicity. That's awesome. So we always like to start with our guests' stories, and you have an amazing story. Um, I'm just going to zero in on one part of it. You talk in Drop the Ball about being raised with that mindset that you could do anything that you set your mind to, and then you realized once you had your son that you simply were not able to. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened and how you learned to, how you decided to drop the ball? Yes. So first of all, thank you for having me, uh, Rachel. I will do anything that you invite me to do. Thank you for your work and your leadership in advancing women. I wrote a book called Drop the Ball because I was someone who was terrified of ever dropping a ball. Um, as you mentioned, I used to think that dropping the ball was a terrible thing to do. It meant that I was failing to take timely action. It often made me feel like I was being irresponsible that I was letting people down, namely myself, my family, or my community, or my colleagues at work, or a boss. It might sound 
a bit exaggerated or dramatic, but in my case, as an African-American woman, I often felt that if I dropped the ball, I would be disappointing the entire Black race, as in, if I mess this up, they are never gonna hire a Black person ever again. And so I felt an enormous amount of pressure to achieve both personally and professionally. And what happened to me is not that I developed some amazing philosophy for how to drop the ball. What happened was that I had a life-changing event, which many people have. Uh, to your point, my life-changing drop the ball moment was the birth of my first child, but it can be anything for those of you who are listening. It could be that you finally got the promotion and you figured out that it's a lot harder to be the boss than you thought it was going to be when you used to talk about the boss at the water cooler or you know in the Zoom chat. It could be that you got a diagnosis. It could be a viral pandemic, an economic recession. A lot of things could happen that cause you to not be able to keep all of the balls in the air. And what happened to me was that all of the balls came crashing to the floor and Armageddon never hit. It's a really interesting observation, meaning that all of the things I was always terrified would happen if I ever dropped a ball, none of them manifested when I had my life-changing event, meaning that no one ever called me to tell me they didn't love me anymore or they weren't going to be my friend because I missed something. My boss never fired me, which I was always paranoid would happen. And Rachel knows my ex-boss at the time. (laughs) I was writing this book. She's a very tough woman, that Marie C. Wilson. So it was very reasonable to me to think that I could get fired. No one ever came to read me my Miranda rights because I hadn't paid all of those tickets for not moving the car for alternate side parking, which if you live in New York City is a bit of a a pain. And I struggled to to not get those bright orange citations as a new working mom who was always running late and to relieve the childcare provider and could never like move the car for alternate side parking. So I just decided that over time, I would reappropriate the term. This was a long process for me. It took me a few years. I wrote drop the ball, hoping that it wouldn't take somebody else so long to, to do this. But for me, dropping the ball really means that, you know, you've figured out what matters most to you, that you've gotten clear about your highest and best use in achieving what matters most, and that you've meaningfully engaged other people and really asked for the help that you that you need. But that's the long-winded story as to how the book came to be. Tiffany, listening to the story and also reading your book, I could relate to one part of it where you say that you had two separate identities. You had the identity queen of domesticity, as you call it. And then the other one was ambitious professional. And those two identities, according to you, were always on a collision course. You didn't realize it until the crash happened. So where do you think women get the idea that they should be doing it all? They should do justice to both identities. And why do you think that idea of doing it all is so destructive? Well, we all get our notions of who we're supposed to be largely from the influences that we've had in our lives. All of us enter the world playing certain roles. If you were assigned boy, your first role was probably son. If you were assigned girl, your first role was daughter. If you had siblings, you became a brother, a sister. You went to the playground, you became a friend, a student, a worker, a manager, maybe at some point, wife, husband, all of these different roles come with invisible job descriptions 
It's what I what I call them. Uh, and in my conversations with so many women over the years, one of my observations is how fascinating it is that even though we're born in different parts of the world to different families, different values, somehow we all ended up with very similar job descriptions for what it means to be a good anything. Where is the source of our job descriptions? Usually come from three places. One is our early childhood experiences, what we observed, you know, other people and usually the gender that we associate with, whatever that person might have done when we were growing up. So for me, that was my mom, who my earliest childhood recollection is that she was in the kitchen. I think my mom lived in the kitchen. I think she slept in the kitchen. <laughs> she was always there, either cooking or cleaning, or there was a hot comb on the stove and she was doing somebody's hair. But basically, that's where she was. Second biggest influence, popular culture. I grew up on The Cosby Show, which basically meant I was going to be Claire Huxtable, who was the main character in that show. You know, in the early 90s, she had perfectly flawless feathered hair, perfect makeup. She was gorgeous. She walked into every room with this beautiful, brightly colored outfit. She had five well-behaved children. Maybe Theo messed up in a few episodes, but they were basically perfect and all college bound. And in the second season of her life, she made partner at a law firm. I mean, what, what is there not to admire about that? Little did I know that it is totally unrealistic for a woman to have five perfectly well-behaved college-bound kids and to make partner at a law firm. But, you know, that was it. Advertising, choosy moms choose. Many people could probably finish that peanut butter, you know, tagline. So all of us are kind of swimming in these expectations about, who we should be. And that's really where the societal pressure comes from. And for those of us who perceive ourselves to be ambitious and certainly in the driver's seat of our own lives, I think one of the most powerful exercises that we can do is to really get at the heart of your own expectations of yourself. And I encourage everyone to do what can be a simple, though, could also be a devastating exercise when you realize it, which is to one, write out a list of all of the roles that you currently occupy in your life, that you fill in your life. Are you a granddaughter? Are you a sister? And then to ask yourself two questions in relationship to that role. Go ahead and put good in front of every role because we at least aspire to be a good mom, not just a, a regular old mom. And the first question I encourage you to ask is, what does a good ex do? If you were writing a job description, just list out what does a good mom do? What does a good manager do? And then the second question I encourage you to ask yourself is, how do I know that that's what a good ex does? How do I know that a good worker is on Zoom or at the office before the boss is? And it's a great exercise because what you'll realize, spoiler alert, is that you are not the source of your own expectations of yourself. Your expectations of yourself come from other sources, but getting at the heart of that is really the first step in you rewriting your job description uh, for whatever role you occupy in a way that really works for you and really getting clear about what matters most. And that's just where I wanted to go next, Tiffany. I was thinking about the conversation that you had with your husband, Kojo, 
in the book. Um, and actually your, your love story with him is, is definitely one of my favorite parts of the book. And, um, I just think it's also like a masterclass in being chill as you wait to attract someone. Um, not that that's the subject of this podcast, but just like you have like mad game and I'm really impressed by it. And as a, as a late in life finder of a partner, I just want to say I was reading it really closely, even a second time, just being like, I never had that much chill. However, um, as you prepared to talk with Kojo in the book, you say, I really need to get clear on what mattered most to me. And for you, it was a precursor. Like you were like, I'm not going to go talk to my partner about what I need in order to rethink how I'm running my life until I'm clear about what matters to me. And continuing along the lines of these practical exercises that you're sharing with our listeners, you talk about that funeral exercise um, in the book, which I'm wondering if you would share with our listeners. And just give us a little more about like finding your highest and best use, which you talked about earlier and why that is so important to this process. Absolutely. So one of the things that I really struggled with in my drop the ball journey was a huge sense of resentment that came from uh, wanting to get support and help from other people, but not really asking for it in a very effective way. I used to be something that I call an imaginary delegator. This is when you assign someone a task, you fully expect them to complete the task on spec, but you never actually tell them that you assigned them the task. And then when common sense prevails and you think, well, Tiffany, you never asked him to take out the recycling or you never asked her to take notes in the meeting, you kind of snap back at common sense. Well, can't he see that the recycling needs to be taken out? I mean, am I the only person? Or, well, when I was an associate, I knew that it was my job to take notes in the meeting. Like, why doesn't she know that that's her job? And it just kind of creates this vicious cycle. And so part of getting support from other people is really getting clear about what should I be doing in relationship to what really matters. So in order to figure out what really matters, there's lots of exercises, but the one, Rachel, that you mentioned is one of my most favorite and I actually talk about it a lot. It's not mine. It comes from a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I also encourage people to read by Stephen Covey. He basically recommends that you do an exercise in thinking about the end of your journey, the end of your life, which may seem morbid, but I think is pretty prescient given that so many people have are losing their lives right now. And imagine what you would want a family member, a friend, and a coworker to say about you at the end of your journey. This is a very important exercise for those of us who, for example, feel that we're very productive. You know, you don't want someone at the end of your life standing up saying, well, you know that Tiffany, she got a lot of things done off of her to-do list. <laughs> you want them to say something about the impact that you created in the world. And so I highly encourage that as an exercise for people who don't even know where to begin with figuring out what matters most to them, because you can start with, well, what kind of impact do I wanna make in the world and start project managing your life backwards from there. Getting clear about your highest and best use is really trying to figure out what do I do extraordinarily well with very little effort not because I was a child prodigy, probably because I've done that over and over and over again, combined with what are the things that only I can do? Not, not the things that I've just been doing, because otherwise everything will stay on your list, but what are the things that would be 
callous or highly irresponsible to delegate to another person. Those things represent your highest and best use. So one of the things that matters most to me is raising conscious global citizens. My kids are important to me. Usually when I ask people what matters most, they rattle off parts of their lives. But what I try to help people get to is, what do you hope to achieve in relationship to that part of your life? So my kids are important to me, but what matters most is that I'm raising conscious global citizens. One of the things that Tiffany does really well with very little effort is helping other people to achieve clarity through guidance and encouragement. Some people say I should have been a professional coach. One of the things that only I can do in relationship to my kids that I feel it would be callous or highly irresponsible to delegate to someone else is instilling values in them. I can get somebody to drop them off. I can get somebody to make a lunch, but the installation of values, I kind of feel like if you're gonna parent, you kind of need to do that. So my highest and best use in raising conscious global citizens is engaging my kids in a meaningful conversation each and every day, no matter where I am in the world, I do it over FaceTime if I need to. What kind of day did you create for yourself today? Who did you laugh with today? I have a 16 year old son who really is not feeling my coaching conversations these days. And so I have to get creative and ask things like, so if an alien spaceship came from outer space and abducted someone from your Fortnite game, who would they have abducted, you know? And he'll say, Jake, they would have taken Jake and I could say, okay, what's going on with you and Jake? And in that way, I can hopefully help my kids develop a positive relationship with themselves, with their peers, with the world around them. And that conversation every day goes at the top of my job description for what it means to be a phenomenal mom. That's my, that's my litmus test. That's the first rearrangement of those priorities. And that's part of, by the way, how you manage the G word, which is guilt. Uh, for those of you who are not paralyzed by it, is really getting clear about what should be on your job description and following that and kind of getting rid of the other one. But that's how I think about the highest and best use. And that's how I think about figuring out what matters most. Tiffany, as a mom of two teenage daughters, I was nodding along the entire time because I could so relate to your story. But there is another thing. I love the way you name that some of those great revelations in your life as Tiffany's epiphany. I think it's just sheer genius. And one of the things that you talk about in one of the epiphany is learning to ask. We all struggle with it. Many high achieving women do. I am leading global teams since the last 10, 12 years, mom of two active teenage girls, having no family living within a couple of thousand miles. I struggle with it every day. So can you tell us about your journey of learning to ask for what you need from others and why was it so hard at first? Yes. <laughs> the reason why asking for help was very difficult for me is because I did something that I'll refer to as an abuse of virtues. So basically I convinced myself that I was a noble person because I didn't impose my challenges or problems on other people who were likely very busy, 
and so I would convince myself that not asking for help was doing a favor to other people. It was helping other people. It was not burdening other people with my challenges. But really what was happening was that my ego was too inflated to allow myself to experience the vulnerability that comes with not knowing the answer, not being able to accomplish something, and therefore requiring you to admit to someone in your life that you don't know, that you can't do it, uh, that you need support, that you need help. And that's a very difficult thing, especially if you're in any kind of an environment, whether it's in your home or whether it's in the workplace, where vulnerability is not something that is accepted. Where, for example, you don't have a manager or a boss whoever says or admits, I don't know the answer. And yet asking for help is the most critical part of dropping the ball. In the workplace, asking for help usually needs to start with your manager because that's the person who really has the most impact usually on your working life. And it starts with the conversation that you've scheduled that begins with what really is most important for that person and for the team, which is whatever your results are for that quarter or for that year. So it might say, it might start something like, hi, Steve, I really understand that in Q2, we need to hit our sales target out of the ballpark. I'm on board. I want to help make this happen. One of the observations that I've made is that I'm able to move a client further faster when I'm spending one-on-one -on -one time with them, when I'm directly interfacing with the client. One of the other observations I've made is that I'm spending a lot of my time in our backend CRM system, and it's taking away from my ability to really interface directly with the client. I'm wondering if you're open to a conversation about how I might support somebody else on the team in learning about our CRM system, but really devoting and pivoting my energy to ensuring that we nail our Q2 result. Are you open to that? Okay, that's what dropping the ball sounds like at work uh, with a manager who is up at night thinking about the Q2 <laughs> goals. If you're a manager, by the way, you are probably thinking, well, that would be amazing <laughs> to have people on my team who are so self-aware, of such clear understanding of what the task is, and who are bringing me a potential solution for how we might be able to move things forward as, to, as opposed to just bringing me the problem. At home, our drop the ball conversations usually start with our relationships that we have you know, with the person and often should probably start with an apology. I'm so sorry that I've been such a beast lately <laughs> um, and that I, I, you know, I ripped your head off for eating the meatloaf instead of the chicken. <laughs> I've, I've just been really stressed lately. I read this book called Drop the Ball or I've been thinking about you know, my life, my, my priorities. And I feel like what I really need to be focused on is X, but I'm spending a lot of my time focused on all of these other things. And I was just wondering if you might be able to, in the spirit of like moving our family forward, take out the recycling once a week, to which the person will probably be like, you scheduled a meeting for this? Like, why didn't you just text me? You could say, that's how important this is to me that you just take out the recycling. <laughs> um, that's how, that's how we begin to ask for help. Tiffany, you said this earlier on when you were answering Rachel's question. You said failing to do it all and then dropping the ball will end up in disappointing yourself, your family. And I have heard you say earlier on in, a, in another talk 
that you will disappoint the entire black race. And I am going to bring in intersectionality into this dialogue now. So how do you think intersectional identities shape how women actually drop the ball? Do you find that there is extra pressure on certain groups of women to do it all or any additional scrutiny on certain women, including myself as a brown woman, who decide to set the boundaries and drop some of the balls? Yes, is the short answer to the question. The longer answer, we all have multiple identities that we're managing. Unfortunately, we live in a world and in a climate right now where we're forced to divide ourselves into slices. We're kind of forced to cut ourselves up and force ourselves into our most marginalized sections. But I think it's important for us to note that all of us share multiple identities, some of which are not discussed or not talked about. I am a woman. I have experienced sexism. I am a Black person. I have experienced racism. I am also a straight person who has benefited tremendously from being married to a man for 25 years. I have benefited economically. The fact that we could buy a home when we were out of college has made a huge impact um, in our ability to attain financial freedom. I am a small woman. I wear a size two, probably worn a size two my entire life. We don't talk about the bias that comes from our size, our frame, and the stereotypes that people have. People assume that I'm fit. They assume I'm healthy. They assume I'm hardworking because I'm skinny. Um, that's, a, that's an enormous privilege. We don't talk about the privilege of being able to conceive children naturally. I was able to do that. I spent no money, didn't take any hormones. It happened fast. Let's be honest, probably conceived in less than 10 minutes each. That's a huge, enormous privilege in today's world. I'm able-bodied. I only wear glasses because I'm over 40. And in order for Tiffany to be able to navigate my gender, in order for me to be able to navigate my race, I have to be sensitive and think about the empathy that I also need to have toward the parts of my identity that might infringe on someone else's humanity. So I would say that it has been challenging and it is absolutely true that there are parts of our identities in which the stereotypes that we face, the oppression that we face weighs very heavily on us. But I will also say that my ability to sustain myself and my ability to be a happy and whole person is actually rooted in me tapping into the other parts of my identity, learning and growing where I can figure out whose pronouns go with whose identity. And that's how I think that we'll all move forward. That's my Tiffany's epiphany answer. <laughs> I absolutely love this. So we talked a lot about the problems. Let's move towards the solve now. And one of the ways, Tiffany, we can delegate and we can do, instead of following someone else's job description, do what matters most is by simply saying no. But I, for one, struggle with that, not only just at work, even at home. And our couple compass between my husband and I are super strong. I still struggle to say no. So thinking about the listeners who are dialing in, what are some of your favorite strategies which, which will enable us to say no effectively? Do you have any specific things that our listeners should do or avoid doing? Yes, I say no multiple times a day 
And it doesn't really matter what I'm responding to. I basically follow the same pattern, which is a four-step communication pattern. The first step is gratitude. Thanks so much for inviting me to this. Thank you so much for thinking of me for this. The second step is to communicate where my priorities lie in terms of my time. So I'll say, right now I'm knee deep in execution on the crew, or right now I'm really focused on our B2B client. I usually say something about whatever I'm focused on. I encourage all of you to do that. And then the third step is to decline whatever it is without apologizing. So I'll simply say, I'm unable to be there. I can't do that. And then step four is more gratitude, but I so appreciate the offer. And whether you are speaking it out loud to someone or whether you're writing it, that very quick, thank you for thinking of me. Right now I'm knee deep executing on the crew. I'm unable to do this one. I really appreciate you bringing this to me. For the most part, I would say 90% of the time evokes, even if the person doesn't like that you said no, will evoke a sense of respect for you. And more often than not, will evoke a sense of awe that you've modeled something. And people, particularly women, will often say to me, we can do that. And I'll say, yes, you can do that. (laughs) Um, And you can do it just like that. So I actually believe that saying no is a, it's just an act of empowerment, not just for you, but often for the person who you're saying no to, who, if they're a really busy woman, is struggling with how do you say no. Now, obviously, there are nuanced no's depending upon the circumstances, but I do that at least three or four times a day. I will keep account. So here comes say yes to say no. So the last one, Tiffany, for you, you are the founder and the CEO of the crew. And that's very important because we are on behalf of uh, Unity PayPal's uh, women's networking group here. You say the secret to your success is your crew. So could you tell us a little more about why you started the crew and what are you most proud so far? Well, I started the crew because I'm the cumulative investment of a lot of people who have poured themselves into me. And I really believe, especially over the past 13, 14 years, I've had a dedicated group of women who I've met with on a consistent basis. At some point in your career, the people who are going to have the most impact on your success to me are actually your peers. Very early in your career, we encourage people to secure mentors. I believe in mentors that are more senior to you have been around the block. Certainly we need sponsors. But for me, it's the Rachel Simmons of the world that have made the most impact in my ability to ascend and to grow and to learn. And I think that regardless of where you find your crew, there are three aspects of a crew that I think are really important for all of us. One is a strong sense of accountability. So having people in your life whose highest allegiance is not to their perception of you, just to you and you unleashing your potential. Accountability um, kind of folds into objectivity, which I think is also really important. People who are not invested in you in the way that maybe your family and friends 
might be because your decisions might impact their lives as well, but people who can really help you take a step back. And then finally, diversity. I think that just like in the workplace, we know that innovation comes from having diverse perspectives. That's the same in our personal lives as well. So you may have a group of people who you share a similar identity with. Uh, I have that in my sorority. We all went to college together. We're all African-American. We all have the same political beliefs, the same faith. They're my posse. They're, they're a great group of women, but they're not the most effective group. Um, I need more diversity in order to really thrive and, and descend. And so the crew is really here to support women who may not have one, uh, but also to support organizations, companies who would like to use that kind of peer coaching model in order to really retain and advance their female talent. And I'm really excited that we've been able to take this model and, and really grow quickly over the past few years. Well, Tiffany, you are just such an inspiration. I know that the women who are listening to you right now are seeing themselves and their questions and their struggles in your own stories and in the insights that you have worked so hard to develop. And so we are so grateful to you for how real you are, how open you are, um, and we wish you all of the best with the crew. Um, and Paramita and I just are so grateful that you were able to stop by looking up. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for being in my crew, Rachel. Paramita, I'm going to adopt you into my crew. This has been wonderful. What an honor. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for being here. Thank you. I'll speak up so you can hear me Cause it's who I am, who I am, that's right Cause it's who I am, who I am I'll speak up, I'll speak up Looking up a Unity podcast has been brought to you by PayPal, developed in partnership with Rachel Simmons and produced by Wheelhouse Media. Special thanks to Jocelyn for her song, Speak Up.